After the recent return of U.S. military from Afghanistan um, and during the continued deployment of the U.S. military in theaters of action all over the world, this Veterans Day might be the most important and the most poignant in recent memory. I'm Clay Aiken, and this week, Politicon welcomes U.S. Marine Corps veteran, author, and the host of the podcast American Veteran, Unforgettable Stories, Phil Clay. He's here to discuss with us how we can best serve the veterans who've served our country and how hopefully we can come together to serve them. Does our country and do our people do enough for those who have defended us and risked their lives? How can we help those who helped us overseas? And would bringing back more congressional oversight of our wars actually help, or would it just exacerbate our divisions further? And more importantly, how the heck are we going to get along? Now, your book, come, your book doesn't come out till does it, did it come out this week or comes out next? When does your book out? Well, I, I had a book uh, that came out about a year ago, and I have another book coming out next year, but... Uh... Oh, I thought it was next. What's the one that's next, next, the next one? So I, I, I'm doing I – mean, Missionaries is the one that just came yes, out. Yes, Missionaries just came out, yeah. But you're saying that was last year? Yeah, it just came out in paperback, right. Oh, maybe that's what I saw mm-hmm. something on. Okay, because Lord knows. I, I was like, please don't tell me it was last year. <laughs> my, my time, my sense of time is completely screwed, like 2020. <laughs> yeah. We're all I, – I look around and think, wait – I haven't left the house since 2019. Is that true? <laughs> it feels like it sometimes. Where are you? Where are you based? Queens, New York. Yourself? Okay, but you're. Where are you from originally? Uh, White Plains, New York. So. Yeah, so, so not too far I've, away. I've come about um, 35 minutes of driving time in life. Is um, you were in? Were you? Were you in high school when? Um, 9-11 happened or not quite yet? I was starting college. I was actually in my like, it was like a freshman orientation hike and I was in the woods on the Appalachian Trail on 9-11. Okay, because I know you're close to my brother's age. I was born in um, 1983. And my brother went in... Okay, he's 85. So mm-hmm. I, for some reason, I thought you were um, a little bit closer. But he, he, w- he went into the Marines oh. um, also and he, he chose to serve in large part because of 9-11 and, you know, just being impacted by that. He wasn't in high school um, during 9-11, but he was in eighth grade, I guess. Um, or was he in high school? Either way, tell me, as I digress, did that have anything to do with your choice to... It did in the sense that um, <laughs> that launched two wars, right? Or led us into mm-hmm. a position where we're fighting in two wars. So... I didn't. Uh, I didn't sign up because of 9/11. I signed up because I wanted to serve my country in some way. In high school, I'd wanted to be a foreign service officer, but uh, and be a diplomat. But uh, we were at war in two countries when I was in college, so it seemed like the best way to serve my country was to join the military. That's. Is that the type of thing that you think kids today think about? I mean, I know obviously my brother wanted to do it. Mm-hmm. So his um, his marine recruiter did not have that difficult a job <laughs> getting him to to sign on. Yeah. But I think about recruiters, re- those who are assigned to be recruiters today, and what kind of difficult job they must have. Do you think that there is that sense of national service in today's high school men and women, or young men and young women? I 
I do think there's a sense of service. It's important to, you know, the younger generation. I think that the kind of calling that I felt, I mean, it, it's difficult to say, right? Because, you know, I can talk about how immediately after 9-11, a lot of people really did feel like they ought to join, right? Um, and by the time, and I, I felt that to a certain extent, by the time I actually accepted my commission, Iraq was already not going particularly well, right? Um, and so, so I think that for a large number of of people who joined post 9-11, you know, you're talking about 20 years, a lot of them joined during fairly rocky periods in, in either one war or the other. And so a lot of them had sort of complicated, uh, had complicated wars uh, and a complicated public discussion about those wars before they joined. So I don't know. I don't know if it's, if it's so different. I, I do think certainly after the fall of Kabul that that has to have an impact, right? What happened in Afghanistan? Um, it would be, I mean, it would be interesting to, <laughs> uh, to talk. Well, about, I mean, I, yeah. well, I mean, I think about my, our, our grandfather, I'll say our, cause this, this veterans day episode, I'll probably reference my brother a lot, but, um, our grandfather had, had, had lost part of his finger yes. when he was uh, a young child. Um, and he used to talk about how upset he was that when, it was time to, you know, when they were calling people up for World War II, he was not allowed to go. Yeah. Um, he was upset because he had this one. He was like, you don't need that finger. You need the other fingers. And he, he was not able to go. And, I, and obviously there was no draft during World War, World War II um, in the U.S. But, but there, was, there were there so many draft. people who – well, not like Vietnam, though. Was, was there – there was, was a, not in the same sense as Vietnam. It was. Was there really? Yeah, yeah. a lot of people oh, Well, now I feel that. like an idiot. When, I sure as hell didn't talk me through that. It's a common misunderstanding, right? You know, we sort of, we think of Vietnam as a draftees war because it was so unpopular, right? Uh And because being drafted um, felt like such an imposition to force somebody to fight in a war that the public was increasingly turning against. But we did have a draft during World War II. Really? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, that is ironic because you're right. I always, knowing how my grandfather acted mm-hmm. and thought about it and how a lot of people in his generation seemed eager to yeah. do their part to serve their country, I guess the draft was maybe not talked about because everybody seemed to want to go. And then, yes, in contrast, Vietnam, I mean, I do know some people who wanted to go to Vietnam, wanted to serve their country, but it was certainly less popular, mm-hmm. as you were saying, um, and I do wonder sometimes what would happen if we found ourselves in a conflict with another country today, a new one yeah. that required uh, that required people to to join. What type of impact the fall of Kabul, as you mentioned, yeah. or just the twenty years of controversy surrounding troops in Iraq and Afghanistan um, and other places has kind of. What what the impact of that is? I mean, you talk, you write a lot about yeah. um, about veterans, especially. And what do you think the sense is? You, you're telling me you think that there's not that that there still is a a desire amongst young people to serve and help. Yeah. In the same way, perhaps as my grandfather had. Well, I think people look at, at military service very differently now, and that's 
certainly the case. I do think, you know, we're not in the position that we were after Vietnam, right? Uh, where there was uh, a lot of sort of stigma. And I do think that in general, most people respect military service, right? Um, you know, so I took my son out to the Veterans Day Parade today, and my, my well, two of my children, uh, two of my three children, uh, out to the Veterans Day Parade today. It was a very warm, kind of wonderful atmosphere. Um, you know, and when the Vietnam veterans, um, there's a sort of Vietnam veterans group um, for Vietnam veterans who suffered PTSD. And, you know, when they went by, there were just huge cheers for them, um, which was really gratifying to see. At the same time, I think that for understandable reasons, a lot of people don't have a tremendous amount of faith in our political and military leadership to use the lives of young men and women well uh, overseas. Uh-huh. And so I think that that is um, – you know, that, that's just naturally going to affect how people think about it uh, and think about military service. Do we really have – do we really, though, honestly have a lot of respect for military service? And I, mm-hmm. I know that sounds like a controversial question, but I want to uh, explain it. I mean, have we been trained to say thank you for your service so much mm-hmm. that, it's, that it's empty? I mean, I, I have done probably more research into some veterans' issues than others have because – the district I live in yeah. contains Fort Bragg. Right. It also contains one of the largest veterans populations in the country uh, for that reason. And the issues surrounding the amount of service that we provide to former veteran to former uh, active duty military is pretty embarrassing. And it certainly do, it's certainly not on par with the amount of parades we throw on Veterans Day. It's certainly not on par with the amount of times we say thank you for your service and talk about it in some sort of pretentious, um, placating way. I mean, where's the disconnect between the amount, of, the amount of talk we have about how much we honor our veterans and the amount of political will um, that's necessary to actually take care of them? Yeah, so... I mean, there, there are pluses and minuses in that regard. You know, there's some, some veteran benefits that have been passed in the past 20 years that are incredible, right? The new GI Bill is incredible, and it's been wonderful uh, for veterans seeking education. I think it's definitely true that there are veterans who sort of slip through the cracks, who have, um, who have difficulties that were not adequately, you know, equipped, uh, equipped for. I think sometimes, especially in the, in the transition period, it can be very difficult, you know, and you saw this – I mean you see this after every war. Like the transition period is very, is, is very difficult. After Vietnam, you had you know, higher rates of unemployment and, and, and homelessness and, and other indicators among the veteran population right after the war. But if you look you know, 20, 20 years later, the veteran population is actually doing better than the civilian population right? Uh, in terms of overall numbers, right? And, and you know, I think that veterans have a lot of sort of assets. better in what way? Better better access to health care or better? I mean, exactly. What do you mean? What? How are they in, doing in better economically? E- economically, metrics like joblessness, you know, un- unemployment rate, um, homelessness. And do the do the numbers do the numbers break those veterans down by um, by? What theater yeah. <laughs> they were in? I mean, are right. we talking about uh, talking about Vietnam veterans doing better economically? Are we talking about Vietnam? Uh, yeah, I'm talking <laughs> Grenada. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm talking about Vietnam specifically, right? And so, I mean, it's, okay. it, in some ways, it's not. So that's a generation that's that's a generation mm-hmm. though that's also probably in their 60s, maybe right. even lower 70s now. Um, mm-hmm. 
so they're doing better, right? So not necessarily because they are veterans, but perhaps because they've had uh, fifty years between so, their their theater and so where they are compared now. Compared right? to the comparable civilian population, so right after Vietnam, they're doing a lot worse than than mm-hmm. you know their age cohort, right? And then gradually they start to make up ground, right? And I think you know better advocates will sometimes say like like veterans, especially people who've been through you know been through military discipline and, and been through, frankly, you know, the, 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 the chaos and difficulties of war and, and been able to sort of overcome that often have a lot of assets that they can bring in the civilian world, right? You know, and then the question is, you know, what about the people who fall through the cracks and why is that transition period so difficult? And I think that that's still something that people um, struggle with in terms of, you know, how do you take somebody, reintegrate them into the veteran community, especially now. I think one of the things that veterans deal with is – you know, it's a very small percentage of people who serve, right? And so isolation can be a pretty significant thing. Um, you know, I remember one of my, one Marine veteran uh, who I'm close with went to college afterwards, but he was, he was the only student veteran that he knew, right? So he was surrounded by 18, 19 year olds. Um, and, he, you know, he said, he said to me, you know, being a student veteran didn't feel like an experience. It felt like the lack of an experience, right? And I didn't have anybody I could talk to. And I'd hang out with these other kids, and they'd tell a story and be like, okay. And I'd tell a story, and people would be like, oh, my God, you know? <laughs> it, uh, right. um, and so he felt— that- That's also probably why so many veterans tend to stay. <laughs> there's so many around Fayetteville. There's so many around Bragg. There's so many that stay yeah. around the installation that they were last posted at, Why right? it can be great to be in an area with a lot of veterans, yeah, for sure. But a lot of those areas have found ways to make that transition better. Exactly. I mean, I, again, mm-hmm. I, I, sorry to people who are listening near Fort Hood or somewhere mm-hmm. else. I, you know, you're going to get a lot of North Carolina here with me. But, um, you know, Fayetteville, Cumberland County, those areas have programs in place to make sure that yeah. that veterans have ac- not only access to services, but the community itself is far more enthusiastic the, about the community employing, is, is huge and you, employing veterans. Yeah, I, I, and the state of North Carolina incentivizes people to employ veterans yep. because it's the most, well, they say the most military-friendly state. Why is, that, why is that not something that is, I guess, I, I guess I'm speaking from frustration, yeah. um, and I, I wonder if you share it, that we do, there's a lot of lip service paid to thank you for your service. My brother has said a hundred times, if, if he got even an, one interview for every 10, thank you mm-hmm. for your services that he heard, he'd be, he'd be better off. But, you know, he finds that, you know, we had a, we had a really tough conversation a few years ago. I can remember my brother doesn't get emotional at all. Everybody got a little bit frustrated at one point because a job he, ne- he really wanted to get, he didn't have, he could not get past a certain level at it. And he thought, you know, I spent, I, I spent four years and went and fought for the country and put my life at risk. And I thought that when I came home, that would have some value to people. But, you know, it doesn't seem to. Where's the, That's what frustrates me, mm-hmm. and I imagine you too, you tell me. The disconnect between thank you for your service and I'm actually going to show you that I appreciate it. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it depends. Some places are great, right? The, you know, for, for example— I've, I've seen that actually in the academic job market, right? I'm an academic. I teach writing uh, at Fairfield. Fairfield, the fact that I was a veteran was one of the reasons that they brought me on board and they've actively recruited veterans into their program, right? Um, because that's what, but it, that's one. Of, that's part of their mission at Fairfield. Well, yes. And but they decided to do that, right? Uh, at right. the University of Nevada, right? Um, 
they have a large veteran population, and the school has been active in supporting a veterans group that reaches out to every veteran who comes in. If there's like a veteran who's struggling, they'll, p- they'll pair him up with like a, a sort of another veteran student who's, who's, you know, a little bit further along in their studies who can help them out. They're proactive about reaching out, forming community, and forming support networks for people. At the same time, in the, I, I should say, you know, I've been told to my face in academic job interviews uh, that being a veteran was a negative. Right. Right. So, but that sounds like, I mean, uh, pardon me. I, I think what Fairfield does, what schools that have that mm-hmm. mission, there are several, I think, in the Northeast beyond mm-hmm. um, that, that focus on that. But that sounds a little bit like segregated uh, <laughs> opportunity to me. I mean, you're talking about programs that are specifically targeting veterans because University of Virginia won't, or because the University of Kentucky won't, mm-hmm. or a lot of other places won't. This is These are people who volunteered to die, if necessary, um, for all of us in the country, not just the people at Fairfield, not just the people in Nevada. Um, you know, so what is – why can – can the can the government do anything? Can the federal government? Can the can state governments do anything to do a better job of incentivizing these folks to uh, these incentivizing more schools to do what Fairfield does, or more business owners to hire veterans or give them priority? It, you you seem to be okay. You seem to not be very frustrated about some of these things, <laughs> which is great if you aren't because you live it, and I don't. So tell me if I don't need to be as pissed as I am. No, it's it's. It's not that I'm not frustrated with their problems. I'm very frustrated with their problems. I think my hesitancy comes from, I think, um, lodging a sort of general complaint uh, against sort of Americans as a whole, because I actually think that Americans in general are very supportive. I think that as a general rule, um, you know, when people are given the opportunity to help and when they sort of, when they have leaders in their communities who um, can actually sort of guide people to being being productive in, in certain areas. Americans do tend to step up, and, and I think that's very true in, in veteran areas as well. Um, I think that there are so you know I I wouldn't want to I wouldn't want to sort of make a general lament, but I would say that there are certainly cases where where we're failing veterans. There are certainly cases where people slip through the through the through, through the cracks. There are certain institutions that are doing a great job, which then calls into question why other people can't emulate that. Is the, uh, your po- you have a podcast, um, American Veteran, yes. or American Veterans, mm-hmm. where you talk about stories, or you or you let other vets talk about their stories. Yes. Do you find that on the whole, more or less, are satisfied with? Having done what they, you know, had having made the choice to serve like they did, or, or I think, well, not. most veterans are right, and and this is regardless of how they feel about their wars. I mean, I think that, um, you know, it's a it's an old poll at this point, but I, you know, something around eighty nine percent of Iraq and Afghanistan veterans wouldn't don't regret their decision to to join. Wouldn't take that back. Uh, even though the support for the wars that they fought in was much lower among that population, right? There were a lot more people with serious uh-huh. questions about, you know, Iraq or Afghanistan. Um, and I think that's very true. You know, one of the things so the, in, in the podcast, we have a whole range of veterans from, you know, World War II, um, Vietnam, the present day. And you and, – and, and there are people who regret having joined, right? Because I think that the, the goal of the series is to show a, a wide diversity, right, of kind of – different 
just sort of really incredible life stories. Um, but there's some people who, even though they had, they had a very difficult time. So one of the people that, that, um, that tells her story, Shoshana Johnson, who's the first black female POW, right? And, you know, as she's telling her story and, and, and the story of, you know, when she was captured in her time in captivity is incredibly gripping, but also incredibly gripping is, you know, when she came back and sort of processing that memory and then reaching out to other members of her family who had also served in, in earlier wars and earlier times um, and pushing them to, to, to process some of the things that they'd been through. And, and she says, you know, she, she does not regret having joined the military. The only thing that she would take back was that day. Right. That day that they were ambushed, that some of the people in her unit were killed and that they were, um, you know, and that's what she would take back, but not having joined, not having, you know, been in the military. And I think that that's that's frequently very common. Right. And but the life, but her life afterwards, her life yeah. since um, coming back stateside, she doesn't have issues. Do, no, do you she delve yeah, into those talks, types of issues with people? She talks about issues that she she had very frankly and very openly. You know, and, and you know, some veterans have have issues ranging from post traumatic stress to um, you know just uh, a range of other issues, sort of transitioning back into into normal life. Um, and then there are some veterans. You know, we talked to one World War II veteran, Edward Field, who became a poet, right? And, you know, he left the service. He, he, he got a lot out of the service. Um, he was a, you know, he was, he was a, on a bomber crew and he like volunteered for missions because he found it so exciting, even though it was, a, you know, tremendously, it was one of the most dangerous jobs that you could have. 25% of the aircraft that we put into the air in World War II went down. Um, and, and he credited the military with having exposed him to a, a broader stretch of life, um, it exposed him to gay life in, in the nineteen forties. <laughs> Ironically, yeah. Um, <laughs> and you know, and and and, and so it, it uh, uh, he felt like it, it strengthened him uh, in many ways. Um, um. So so we I mean so we are a political podcast, yeah. but we try not to be too political, right. and especially on on a subject like this, I don't want to ask you to be more political than you want to be, but do you find that – I've got five questions floating around in my head here, so I'm going to try to get just one at, out at once um, at a time. Do you find that there's any sort of um, commonality amongst veterans you speak to, either on the podcast mm-hmm. or, or outside of it, when it comes to what they believe needs – our country needs more or less of right now. I'm not going to ask you specifically, sure. are there more progressives or are yeah. there more conservatives? But do you find a commonality amongst veterans that that their time in service tends to provide veterans with this particular worldview mm-hmm. and how how we could improve this country? Well, you know, one thing that I've seen that's interesting among <laughs> veteran lawmakers and, and – and, um, is I, and is I think we're, Vet, when you say veteran lawmaker, you mean veterans who become lawmakers, yes, right? Okay. Um, on both sides of the aisle, Democrat and Republican, is more interest in oversight of Congress. Because one of the things, especially from our generation, that people come back with is this sense that America is not really paying attention to the wars, right? That you're out there fighting, and there are people who don't even know there's a war going on, mm. and 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 part of that is because we've made political decisions. Um, to, you know, Congress doesn't vote on wars anymore, 
right? We were still using an authorization for the use of military force that was passed in 2001, and we're using it all over the globe in different continents, you know, killing people in groups that didn't exist in 2001 uh, or that are sort of only very, very loosely tied to anybody that authorization was originally intended um, to authorize us to, to, hunt, to you know, go out and kill. And, and they feel as though there's been a kind of drift in terms of how we do military policy. And, and this is not something that is simply, you know, Democrat or, or Republican thing. But I think it's, it's a matter of the amount of serious, sustained moral and political attention that we're, we're paying towards, the amount of oversight that Congress is actually exercising, whether or not we're actually debating what we're doing and why and how it's, you know, how, what kind of goals we're trying to achieve and whether or not we're achieving them, right? Congress. Oh, well, come on, Phil. We don't debate shit. Right. Anyway, so, <laughs> it's not just, it's not just these issues. It's all the yeah. issues. We don't really debate well, yeah, too true. much. So you have seen, we make political you, you know, uh, folks on, on, on both sides of the aisle uh, who have pushed for this, um, uh, you know, Peter Myers, a Republican, uh, congressman. I know that Tim Kaine, uh, sort of more oversight has long been something that he's, uh, he's been pushing for. Um, another thing that I think has crossed political lines, um, beyond just sort of wishing we paid more attention and wishing that, um, we had not just sort of ceded all authority for war making to the president, right? You know, we're killing people in like six, seven or eight countries right now. Um, and Congress has almost no role in, in, in those ongoing operations. They all just sort of fall under the same authorization from 2001. Um, so, but aside from that, I think one thing that, that um, I have seen is very important to a lot of veterans of, of all political persuasions, and I don't mean to speak for every veteran because obviously it's an incredibly diverse group, but evacuating those people who worked for us whose lives are at risk is very important, right? So, you know, that uh, the evacuation in Afghanistan, you know, that work is still going on. I was talking to a an Afghan SIV who's still stuck in Kabul. SIV is a special immigrant visa. It's the visa that we give to people who's, who worked for us, right? Uh, oftentimes whose lives are at risk because they work for us. This particular guy that I was talking to, um, you know, he, he already had to flee his home in 2015 because of death threats from the Taliban. Um, and now he's under more threat, obviously, because the Taliban controlled the entire country and he's still in Kabul. Uh, he's very worried for his children. He has three daughters. Uh, his wife is pregnant. And, um, uh, you know, why he's still there, it says a lot about our broken immigration system. It says a lot about the, the hold on, in, on any kind of immigration from Afghanistan that was put in uh, during the Trump years, it says a lot about the failure of the Biden administration to adequately plan for the, the sort of coming humanitarian catastrophe. And so, you know, and I know vets who have been working, you know, 24-7 on this issue, and it's just kind of heartbreaking. I mean, well, then let's let's delve into it, because I, I know I get the sense you want to talk a, a little bit more about Afghanistan. So I'm going to play devil's advocate some, sure, go for it. if I can, um, and ask— is that not is that not one of the arguments that some could make for why Congress might not be able to do the decision making in situations like that? I mean that it that certain military actions or or 
diplomatic actions, whatever you want to call the withdrawal. It was obviously mm-hmm. a military withdrawal, but are so complex and so multi-layered that trying to get 535 people um, to discuss them with five, you don't have time for it. Um, I'm sure you've heard, as have as has pretty much anybody else who's been awake since the withdrawal this summer, you know, five, six, seven different opinions on how that withdrawal took place, what should have been done or what shouldn't have been done, mostly what shouldn't have been done, very little what should have been. Um, is that not an argument for leaving that decision, those types of decisions in the hands of the commander-in-chief and the Department of Defense and the Joint Chiefs, et cetera, versus 535 politicians who probably don't know what's going on on the ground as much? Well, uh, what I would say to this is, obviously, like, the, you know, Congress is not going to make tactical decisions, right, uh, about how to execute a policy. Um, but Congress is supposed to be the, the, the branch of government that's with the authority uh, for making war, right? And I mean, actually, the founders didn't even want a standing army they want a Congress that can vote every two years to keep it up, um, and we're worried about. Uh, but and, and and so, but right now we just have a standing war, and so what I would say. Well, is, then, but assume, but assume in the scenario where yes. we did not have reauthorization, right. every if we didn't have this automatic re- reauthorization. What I would like assuming to see, in the situation where we had to have Congress authorized mm-hmm. to maintain troops in in Afghanistan, I would assume that at the very least. Um, by 2018, <laughs> at the very least, certainly probably before then, that authorization probably would have lapsed, right? And Congress would have felt the political pressure from Americans who were tired of being in Afghanistan mm-hmm. to deauthorize that action and expect that we come home. Um, so then if that were the case, if, mm-hmm. the, if Obama said we were going to leave— um, he was going to get us out, and he didn't. And Trump said he was going get to get us out, and he didn't. Right. At some point, the tactical decisions about how to do that would be left up to either Obama, Trump, or Biden. What changes would be made? What changes would you have made or done I think differently? If you're going to have ongoing combat operations, if we're, we're going to be killing people around the world, which we're currently doing, I think that even if, it, it, look, even if you think – and there are some of these missions that I think are good where we have troops stationed, right? that I support. Um, but I think that the president should have to come before Congress on a regular basis, maybe every two years. Um, but certainly they should have some sunset clauses. And I think that if he wants to continue the operation, he should have to make a case. He should have to say why we're putting troops in harm's way, why we're killing people, what we expect to get out of it, what it's going to cost, what the benchmarks of success are going to be so that if he comes back in two years, we can actually see whether or not we've achieved anything that we said we wanted to. And then I think every every member of con- Congress should have to vote on it. Do I think that's going to fix so military policy? Then, I don't think it's going to fix so military policy, that, but it will at least force some degree of accountability, and it won't, you know, it won't just be, you know, military policy happening in the dark with no responsibility to the American public, um, because this is the most morally fraught thing we do as a nation. And to say that Congress right. just gets a total pass on it. Um, I think I don't think it's sustainable for a republic if we take, you know, our ideas about who we are as a nation seriously. This is this is this is the most important thing that we should be regularly voting on. Right. So, but then what? I guess because I don't think anything. I, I, I said I would try to play devil's advocate. I'm gonna have a hard time <laughs> even playing devil's advocate to that to what you just said because 
I think by and large, a lot of America on both sides of the aisle would probably agree with that. We'd like a little more transparency. We'd like a yeah. little bit more. Um, most people would like a little bit more explanation for why we're doing these things. And, and, and but it doesn't we, necessarily. If we had to regularly debate it, people would know we were at war, right? And this is this gets right. back to that that feeling that the individual veteran has. It maybe doesn't get expressed politically. Of being forgotten. But they come back and nobody even knows, right? You're, you're, you know, I, I was talking to, to veterans who were in Syria, right? And they came back. People were like, Syria? I didn't know we yeah. were in Syria. And it was like, right. yeah, of course. So, but, but, that, but, that doesn't get to the, but that doesn't get to the actual Afghanistan withdrawal question, sure. right? Which, which is, let's assume all of the stuff that, that yeah. you and most people would like, which is well, I, I, I we want we more transparency, explanation. Mm-hmm. What would be different? Let's assume Biden went to the, to the Capitol and laid out his plan, and they said, nope, you got to pull out. He said, okay, I want to pull out. Yeah. What would be... I guess there's there's a lot of talk about how much this might affect his legacy sure. in the long term yeah. or how this this withdrawal really stains his reputation etc mm-hmm. and I I'm in all the weeks that we've spoken about it with people since this yeah. happened very few have said what they felt should have been done differently other than we shouldn't leave people behind that worked with us um which Everyone, I think, agrees with, but then at the same time, a lot of people say, yeah, but you also, we also need to make sure that nobody's slipping through the cracks who's a terrorist who <laughs> was, is able to convince us that they worked with us or helped us or they helped us 15 years ago, but then they left and then they became, you know, a jihadi <laughs> and they're using their help from 2005 that they gave us as their reason to get in. So, you know, it's just so multi-layered, yeah. right? That's the that's kind there's, of where the question came from. What would be regard, different? To be perfectly honest, I mean, the the people who are coming through, I mean, the amount of vetting that they have is just, I mean, it's 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 outrageous. Um, you know, like, what's better though? Too much vetting? What's worse though? I'm sorry, too much vetting? I think when or not I think enough? when you have when I'm speaking to veterans who owe their lives to people whose lives are at risk who are being hunted by the Taliban. When I've got veterans, I was speaking to a veteran and there's a woman, she's pleading, she's crying because the Taliban came and they beat her and she's got fluid in her lungs and she's hiding and doctors are hiding her in a hospital because she's on a kill list. And she says, why, why, why are our lives not worth saving? Um, When you have another friend of mine who was working, trying to help an Afghan that he tremendously admired and that guy was murdered. He was murdered two weeks ago. And this is bureaucracy, obviously. and, and, And... you know, at a certain point, it's like <laughs> there are people dying. There are people dying who actually put their asses on the line for Americans, right? And we're saying we are willing to let them die. We are wi- willing to let them live in fear and terror because we are so – Who's willing? Uh, uh, the, American, uh, uh, the American people who, who – who, those Americans who don't support um, opening up immigration for these folks. Right, because that is literally what is happening. You, uh, so, dying, so that's it. Right. I guess I'm trying. I guess you see, I'm trying to figure out exactly right. what the so issue we, is. Because I don't think if you tell these stories, most Americans on both sides of the aisle, in the, especially yes. in the weeks after the withdrawal, Republicans were pissed that yes. Biden would dare leave anybody there who tried to help, and Democrats were pissed that people were dying, and yet it was still happening. And I'm trying to figure out because the news sure as hell hadn't made it clear. Is it a bureaucratic issue or is it a desire on the part of someone in the State Department or the Department of Defense to actually not let as many people right. in? So, well, well, during the Trump years, that was certainly the case, 
right? So we basically shut down immigration from Afghanistan. Right. I mean, like we literally shut it down. And then even when it opened back up, right. it was at such a crawl, you know, um, that it was sort of like, you know, in World War II um, under the FDR, I forget the, the name, the guy who didn't want to let Jews in, right? But he didn't want to publicly say that America wasn't accepting Jews. And he, there's a sort of infamous telegram that he sent out where he said the tactic is delay, 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 right? Um, and so it's sort of like, you know, you can, you can throw up bureaucratic hurdles that slow things to an absolute crawl. And that's what happened. Do you think that's still happening now? So it very much ramped up during the Biden administration. And yet, uh, I mean, there's tons of things that they ought to have done that they did not do. Right. And there are things that still can be done. Right. Um, uh, that I think they really need to do, right? So I think there should be waivers on, on certain types of fees. There should be waivers for humanitarian parole and, and, and uh, uh, like sort of classes of, of folks by category to actually get them to the United States. And there's a whole host of things um, that we could do to make this process easier uh, than it has to be. But at the end of the day, you know, part of the problem is we're working with the U.S. immigration system as a whole is broken. It doesn't work during normal times, and this was a crisis. <laughs> right. Um, you know, during Vietnam, we set up a joint sort of interagency task force to actually deal with uh, refugees from Vietnam. And by the way, we the same. You know, maybe there's going to be communist infiltrators from Vietnam. We took in tens of thousands of people. Um, more than that, uh, no problems. Right. Uh, you know, incredible, incredible asset to America. The the, the you know, what the Vietnamese community has brought to America as, you know, uh, in, in, in the wake of that decision uh, to let in, you know, large. Do you think that the, do you think that the fall of Kabul is is. Par it has parallels or is is it, even synonymous it, with the fall of, of um, Saigon? I mean, it's it, 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 yeah, certainly there are similarities. Right. It's 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 the losing moment of a war. Right. And it's also the occasion when there were a lot Was of— Was it the losing moment of the Afghan war? I mean, this is the thing. For me, and I supported the withdrawal, right? And I always expected—I think everybody who was paying attention expected that this was going to happen, right? Um, right? We couldn't have continued fighting there. There are people who would say, oh, if we'd kept 2,500 troops in, we could have kept things stable. It's like, are you kidding me? Well, they're sitting in their living room watching the football it's, game at the same time they're telling you that, I'm insane. sure. It's <laughs> insane. I mean, you know— the, the only time <laughs> that we really sort of pushed back the Taliban was when we threw in, you know, well, over 100,000 troops. We had a huge surge of troops, and those gains disappeared like that, right, the second that we left some of those areas. And then it was sort of steady gains for the Taliban. If you think that 2,500 troops would have kept things stable, you are kidding yourself. And so, so do you think? So do you think the Afghan War was lost in the same way that that a lot of people believe the Vietnam War was? It was. The Taliban is in charge of the country now. So I, I don't see right. any so other way. So then, who will be remembered for that? Who is who will be remembered for that? Will it be Biden who's remembered for that, or will it be Bush or Obama or Trump? Oh, I think it's a. I think all four presidents bear responsibility. I think that Bush. I mean, I, I'm sure I don't. I'm sure it won't be tough to ask. It's not going to be a tough question for you. But do you think that most people know who the president was during the fall of Saigon? It's a good question. I mean, but you know, I don't think there's anyone. You know, do people blame Kennedy for Vietnam? Do they blame Eisenhower? Right. Well, some people. Some some people would blame Kennedy mm -hmm. since he started. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, <laughs> but I think most people think of Johnson and Nixon yeah. as being the the main reasons that that Vietnam was a failure. And I have yet to find one person who I've asked who has realized that the fall of Saigon happened under Gerald Ford. So do you think that, I mean, from a political perspective, had Biden allowed the war to go on for another year, perhaps it would have been a part of his administration, a part of his legacy. This is uh, he, uh, he would think, own the war by pulling out immediately. Did he did he pull a Gerald Ford and remove his name from being a part of the, uh, the Afghan I war? I think if he kept troops in longer, it would have been a much more disastrous pullout because the, the, the Taliban would have been ramping up attacks. We would have been withdrawing under much worse circumstances. Um, you know, I, I think that probably a lot of the emphasis is going to be on George Bush because it was, you know, um, because of the way that we set up the Afghan government. I mean, you know, we set up a government that that was never anything more than a kind of, um, you know, it was, it was our American Western country. Well, we're very good at doing that as, as we Americans. We're very good at setting up governments be, that we think are going to work you know, really well. And then they suck. Yeah, with not a lot of interest in what was actually sort of, you know, the local power structures in Afghanistan. And, and, and so it was always something of a mirage. You know, we could have sunk infinite resources into it for as long as we wanted. It never would have been able to take off on its own, which is, I mean, it was basically what we did. Um, and so, yeah, so I supported the withdrawal. I think it was the right decision. Right. Um, and so, you know, but that and but sort of slowly drawing down troops that that happened over the course of three administrations. How does it how does it and the 20 years and I know I've kind of asked this before, but I'm going to ask it again. The 20 years of war mm-hmm. in Afghanistan and Iraq, 20 years in, in Afghanistan. And the discombobulated <laughs> withdrawal. Yeah. Um, and the lack of attention to the service of men and women who were over there, especially at least in the last 10 years of that war, very little attention paid to it. How will that or how do you think that does continue to impact the enthusiasm for 17 and 18 year old men and women to want to serve now? Well, I don't think the fall of Kabul was a good recruiting pitch. Um, but I also don't think that I don't think that sort of a long-running war that was seen as a failure was a good re- recruiting pitch either, right? You know, at the very least, I think what you need to do is <laughs> we needed to end the war, and we actually need to start using our military in a more responsible way. That when the average American looks, you know, looks at what we're doing, they can understand, right? how that is related to American national security, American interests, American values, right? Which I think are also really important. You know what? Uh, what are those? What are them? What, you know, I, I actually think in the withdrawal, you know, the Marines who were there evacuating people who died in that blast, right? That mission, out of all the missions in Afghanistan, you know, there's so many missions in Afghanistan over the past 20 years that you can point out as ill-conceived, right? Um, that, that, you know, I know guys who, you know, who went into some pretty tough places, right? Only to see, you know, everything turned to nothing, right? But what they were doing at the very end was they were 
They were risking their lives to help other people, to save other people, right? I think that is incredibly noble. And um, is that an inherently American value, though, or is that an inherently is that is that a value inherent in Marines and soldiers and sailors and airmen and women? I mean, what I think, what, what are American values? I think that, that that there is an image of America that is um, where values are core to our identity. Values like liberty, equality, right? The sort of you know the the. Uh, what Ralph Ellison describes as sort of sacred words of, of, of American democratic life that we're always sort of, you know, violating and then trying to sort of, you know, go back and, and, and live up to. Uh, I think a certain degree of openness, right? Like they were risking their lives for people, a lot of them, um, you know, from another country, uh, looked, at, looked different from a lot of us, practiced a different religion from a lot of us, and yet nevertheless, they felt a commonality and a responsibility to these people who they had, you know, who in many cases um, had, had helped Americans, had served with Americans. Um, and I think that, that degree of, of, of openness um, and open heartedness is America at its best, at its best. Do you think Americans feel that way? I mean, it sounds like you're talking about this image of America from outside America, mm-hmm. that that's how we yeah. are and should be. Do you think that the current population of the U.S. feels like that's what our values should be or are? I think it's, I think it's our job to make that America a reality, right? And I think that, you know, <laughs> I, I, I really do, you know? And I think— <laughs> Are we doing well with that right now, Phil? You know, <laughs> how are we doing? <laughs> you know, I was talking to a, a, a vet who— was was doing these evacuations, right? And it was, I mean, he was just destroyed. He was an Afghan vet, right? Afghan infantry vet um, in the Marines. And during the time, I mean, he was he was so distraught. It was just a brutal process, right? Because you're trying everything you can. And there are people who, you, you know, you really think, you know, why can't I bring these people over? And he couldn't, you know, he couldn't get, and he'd sort of feel like, you know, what was the right form? What didn't I fill out? Who didn't I contact? And then, um, I talked to him recently and he was helping a a family move in, refugee family move in. Um, And he lives in St. Louis. And there's like, he's like, a lot of people came out. A lot of people, uh, you know, because currently there's the, you know, you're taking people from a foreign country. They left with, you know, just what they could carry. They don't have anything. And there's not a lot of funds to actually get people up on their feet uh, when they come uh, to America, and the community in St. Louis uh, has really stepped up. And he said, "You know, all these years, I thought Americans didn't care about Afghanistan, but all these people, you know, they saw something that that they recognized was was wrong that was happening. And when they were given an opportunity to actually step up and try and reach out and help another person, they came forward. So I think that I think you do still find." those those elements of the American character, right? And they're, you know, it's not just expressed in, in refugee issues. It's just on my mind because I've been speaking with Afghans and people working in the evacuation space. So, and they're incredibly heartbreaking stories. So that's what I'm, you know, I have it very much top of mind. But I think there's a lot of avenues where Americans do do that. And I think that, um, you know, when, and this is why I talk about values. You know, it's not just enough that I think you know, people don't, don't just want to see that our military is not losing wars, right? They want to have faith that our military leaders and political leaders know what they're doing, that they're being responsible. But I think they also, you know, they want the military to be doing things that, that we as Americans feel pride in 
and that 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 help call us to our best sense of ourselves, right? Um, huh. And that's ultimately, you know, you know, so it's, it's very funny, right? So, um, you know, like a lot of people are talking about China right now, and we have a more powerful military than China, but whatever, you know, if we're if we're rattling sabers at China and China China's rattling sabers at us. I think that's a that's a confrontation that China probably feels very confident in. Our advantage over a country like China are the advantages of an open society, right? Um, and I think that the things that appeal to people about America that give us added strength um, are are related to the basic fundamental ideals of American democracy. Um, you know, going back to the founding. Um. God, I so want to follow up on that, but I'm going to I'm going to get in trouble if I don't get some of these questions from um I really want to ask you if they're really that if they're making us strong those values are making us stronger that open society thing. Um but uh I'm going to get to Tina from we had some really good questions coming for you this week because people a lot of specific things um especially uh from veterans mm-hmm. um but this one's not from one Tina or I don't think it is sorry Tina. Tina from Atlanta um asks, did we lose something when we lost the sense that war and soldiering had an element of glory and destiny hmm. in the popular imagination? Well, I don't think we've, I don't think we've lost the sense of, of glory. I mean, um, I think that sometimes our sense of where that glory lies is a little bit um, misplaced, right? So if you think of like A lot of the popular culture things about the recent wars have focused on on lethality, right? Like the deadly, deadliest sniper, or, or what have you. Right. You're talking about you're talking about what we see in the zeitgeist, the yeah, movies, movies, the TV shows TV that shows, focus right? on these things. Whereas, um, what the nobility of, of soldiering is not in willingness to kill, right? It's in willingness to sacrifice, and right. you know, which is why you know, like one of the the classic. But so then, so then, maybe Tina's question is: Did we lose something when we forgot that? Mm. Because because we have allowed our movies and our TV shows to, or we've we've celebrated these movies and TV shows that talk about the willingness to kill yeah. instead of those TV shows and movies that, like they did maybe in the forty fifty years ago talked about the willingness to die. Yeah. The willingness to risk for others. Right. And, um, and, you know, you know, it's funny cause that could have, that could have actually tactical consequences on the ground. Right. So an example of that, I, I know that I was in Paktika province in Afghanistan and, um, he was a infantryman. Right. So they're out every day patrolling through these towns. They're meeting with, you know, local village elders, right? And uh, while they were there, Navy SEALs did a raid uh, and they took out a, a Taliban commander. And then the SEALs saw that there was like a, a truck outside and there were three people sleeping under the truck and they didn't know if the truck was related to the compound that they just uh, raided, but they decided to call the people out. Three guys got out from under this truck where they were sleeping. One of the, they, they raised, two of them raised their hands, one of them wouldn't. Uh, sort of shouting commands to raise their hands. The guy doesn't do it. And so the SEALs uh, shot the guy who didn't raise his hand. And it turned out that that was a 
you know, teenager with a muscular degenerative disease and he, and he couldn't raise his hands. Right. And, you know, when, um, my friend, uh, the unit was furious at the seals and the seals had this attitude, like, you know, we're not, you know, we're not risking ourselves because, because some, you know, some guy was like, you're, you know, the reason you joined to risk your life. And the person whose life really was at risk in that circumstance was not yours in a situation that you, a bunch of the best commanders in the world, you know, against three like teenagers, totally controlled, but us. Because what's going to happen because you killed that teenager is the villages are going to be serious at us and we're going to face more IEDs. And, you know, we're not going to get tips from the local population because they're going to be mad because you killed their family member, right? Um, we're going to die because you were moral cowards. And huh. I think that, um, that, that aspect of a particular hard edged, you know, um, vision of martial valor, which is about cruelty rather than toughness and cruelty and toughness are different things. Right. But where we actually sort of right. enjoy um, somebody who's got a kind of cruel edge to them, right? That I think is is bad morally, but it's also bad tactically, especially in the kind of wars that we're fighting right now. That rely, you know, we're all over the globe right now, and everywhere where we're operating, we rely on local partners, right? Because we're fighting asymmetric wars. So, you know, this is not World War II. This is not Korea. These are very different wars. And that kind of attitude will, in the long term, harm our national security. It's going to get guys killed, and it's also just going to cause suffering. Okay, Riley from Portland, Oregon, um, we'll do one more, wants to know, should more members of the military participate in politics? <laughs> uh, depends on the member of the <laughs> I'm military. I'm ready for this answer now. I, I, you know, I think it's, I think it's good. Uh, when they're veterans who participate in politics. But, you know, I also think that... Um, Why'd you laugh? <laughs> well, no, because a question like that all immediately calls to mind like the biggest knucklehead that you knew in the Marine Corps. You know what I mean? <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> not that like, one. <laughs> not that guy, you know. Yeah, I can think of a few yeah, probably. I mean, I this, this is like, wouldn't. you know, Marine <laughs> I, I remember I was, I, I was watching with a buddy of mine, um, uh, and we saw one of those like support the support the troops stickers, and he was like, I support most of the troops, uh, but <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's good. But you think generally it's a good idea to have people in the in from the military think, who are I think people who've done public service more generally, right? I think that you know we're talking about people talking about a sense of glory, and and uh, I think that a sort of respect and devotion to the idea of public service more generally, not just in the military, but more generally, um, is something that we could do more, we have, have more, right? I think that that's very important. I mean, if you've chose, if you've, if you've offered, if you've offered to sacrifice, to make the ultimate sacrifice, yep. then one sh would believe at least, or sh could believe that your, your desire to be in politics is not guided by fame or riches. Sometimes. Um, you know, your motivation... <laughs> Well, one could yeah. believe is what I'm saying. I mean, obviously there are a few who are there who are going to be. I, I, I think there are, there are uh, many, after something there are many that they shouldn't be in the first place. A tremendous amount of respect for. I, I will certainly say that. Right. I think that uh, even people who I don't. I mean, yeah. I'm not an Adam Kinzinger voter necessarily, but people who have who have made that that 
offer mm-hmm. of the ultimate sacrifice, yeah. who've been willing to, who've loved the country enough to be willing to die if need be, probably are motivated um, by things other than fame and fortune and power uh, by going into politics. I want to ask you, um, though, real quick before we wrap up, we'll make sure that people are, are well aware of your um, of your podcast, American, um, Ma- Veterans, American Veteran, or American Veteran yeah. Unforgettable Stories. Yeah. Um, but also, why fiction? Mm-hmm. Um, you you know you won the National Book Award um, uh, six six years ago for your first yep. book, but you've done quite a few since, um, and you use fiction to talk about a lot of these military and veteran stories yeah. instead of um, instead of you know nonfiction, which so many others do. What is it about writing fiction that do you think it's more effective in? I, I think getting people I think interested. Fiction allows you to do things you can't do in any other form, where you invite people into the into the skulls. Of, of other people and ask them to imagine themselves in these positions, right? And and I think that's really deeply important. You know, I, I was I was talking to a veteran who suffers from post traumatic stress. He had a traumatic brain injury, and he was saying, you know, I'll tell people what I've been through, and he's been through some things, as you can imagine. And he says, people will often tell me, and this is a thing veterans often hear, I can never imagine what you've been through. And he says, he goes, it makes me mad because it's like, what if I want you to imagine? what I've been through? What if it's important Hmm. to me that you try? And I think that's related to why I write fiction, why I'm trying to, to write things that, that is open to civilian and veteran alike to try and, you know, empathize with these characters, imagine themselves into that position and then, um, and then respond in some way. You know, I, I, um, I was talking to a couple and the husband uh, had been to Iraq, and they said they told me that uh, they hadn't actually talked about his deployment. Um, but when he re- he read my book, and then he had his wife uh, read my book, and they and he would read aloud to her story, and then they would discuss it, and he would start talking about his deployment, and that was like almost hmm. like the icebreaker, right? It was like the the bridge, and that to me is probably. It's probably the best compliment I've ever been given about my work, right? Um, that it opens up that sort of connection uh, where people, you know, maybe had difficulty finding it before, that place to actually begin that conversation. And you got a lot of – President Obama, I think, named your most recent book, his one of his favorites of last year or of, <laughs> or of the year, uh, Missionaries. Yeah, um, if you're listening, you can pick Missionaries up now in paperback. I, uh, I had to correct myself a little earlier. <laughs> Um, the paperback version just came out, so you can grab that for your next flight since we're all able to fly now. How exciting. Um, <laughs> and you've got another one coming out next year, uh, which we'll, we'd love to have you back because there's so many other questions that I've, I've had on my mind as we've been talking. So when that next book comes out, come back. We'll talk about it, and, we'll, and I'll write down some of these questions that I haven't had a chance to ask, ask um, tonight. But um, we, we, our goal here on this show is to get people from different backgrounds in politics to talk about things that we agree on, disagree on. Sometimes I'll fight a little bit harder than um, I did tonight. But, uh, <laughs> but you, you know, you, you come from a background that is sort of universally respected by people, um, but also somewhat universally misunderstood uh, <laughs> by a lot of people also. And so what you're doing with letting um, veterans tell their stories on your podcast, American Veteran with no S, um, <laughs> is is remarkable for that reason um 
thank you so much for doing it. But but how do you think this country, which is so divided, um, there are so few things that we seem to agree on. Your life and a lot of your mission um, with your podcast and writing about veterans in your books, sort of the one thing that we can agree on. Um, in all the other stuff, how the heck are we going to get along? <laughs> I mean, that's the big question, right? Um, and I mean, for one thing, you know, stop treating politics as a sport. Remember that you're fellow Americans. You know, I was, I was so it's the Veterans Day today, but yesterday is the Marine Corps birthday, and I was hanging out with these this, this group of Marines from all different walks of life. And one of the guys, he's got 100% disability, injured, um, you know, multiple uh, combat tours, and he was telling me, he's like, he's like, he was telling me about this guy, he knew Sergeant Major Manny, he's like, he's like, Sergeant Major Manny, me, we hate each other politically, but that guy is one of the greatest, and I'm going to censor all the curse words that he used, because... <laughs> you can say whatever the hell you want to here. He's like, that guy... It would just expand it like twenty times. I've never, longer. I've never heard of, of a marine not willing to cuss. <laughs> He's like, it's the best. Come on He's now, Phil. Fucking marine! I have a fucking song <laughs> with. I love that motherfucker, and I would go to any fucking war with him. And, you know, it's a, it's a, you know, heartening moment of overcoming <laughs> partisan divides. <laughs> So cussing more. Yeah. That's the uh, <laughs> more, cussing with the, people more. The That's Marine how the heck. Answer is more profanity. <laughs> there you go. Hey, whatever works. It's done them well for fifty years. So thank you for that, Phil Clay. Thank you so much for being with us this week, and um, and Happy Veterans Day, and thank you for your service, and um, and all those folks who uh who you talk to. Please send our respect and our appreciation to them as well. Thank you.